we are starting a, a, a whole new uh, talk today. It's going to go on for four weeks, and this is, this is a series on simplicity. I love simplicity. There comes a point when anything can be made infinitely complicated because under the hood, things are infinite, infinitely complicated. Imagine if driver's ed started out with them saying, we're going to start with this. Behold the key. In most cars, the, the key is a metallic-like spear ground with peaks and valleys and a specific way to interlock with the tumbler inside the steering column, and when it's connected, it turns and sends electrical current to the ignition. Now, on to lesson one, electrical theory and DC implementation of motor vehicles. You'd be sitting there as a kid thinking, I just wanted to drive my friends to the beach at the end of the summer. I, I have no idea what's going on right now. It would be too much information of what's going on. At some point, the driver's ed instructor is best just saying, Turn the key, start the car, put it in drive, let's go. You just have to get going. And I would say all those other things of mechanical information and, and, and everything else you could possibly know about driving in cars could come in handy. As infinitely complicated as a car can be and its problems, there's solutions to each one of those if you know the information. It can be useful, but it's important to just keep the basic, simple structure in mind as to what you should do in driving. You simply get started, and the big picture is to just get moving. Big picture is critical for learning strategy. It's one of the ways that we're encouraged when we're learning to try to get the big picture so we see it from beginning to end, and then we can plug information into it as it goes. In fact, this is something teachers are told all the time, and it's implemented in all kinds of things. You ever heard the saying, tell them what you're going to tell them, then tell them, then tell them what you told them? That's a, a, a structure for speeches that sounds incredibly boring to listen to, but that's what apparently people say you're supposed to do. And that's where you're going to give the overview, and then you fill it in with information, then you call back to that overview at the end. Try to keep the big context together, because the simplicity is critical. The, the Bible, uh, in its big picture for Christianity, what is it? The Bible has so many teachings that get into the the nitty-gritty, the, the mechanics of our life. And it's why one of the things that when we always come together, every church around the world, we take time looking at what the Bible would say to us because it has so many things. As infinitely complicated as your life is, is how infinitely healing God's Word is, how instructive it is, how, how it builds us up. But all direction from God can be contained in the teaching Jesus talks about today. A simple two-point teaching. Every single thing that it says falls into those, one of these two points. This is the master teaching, the big thing, the, the main concept that governs all of Christian life. And so we're going to read a little bit in Luke 10 today. We're going to start in verse 25. On one occasion, an expert in the law stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, he asked him, what must I do to inherit eternal life? What's interesting is that it's right from the onset, someone stood up. A teacher in the law stood up to test him. This question's actually imperfect. It's not entirely genuous. It's disingenuous. Is genuous a word? I've heard disingenuous, leading me to believe genuous is, in fact, a word. But uh, it's disingenuous. It's not a desire to learn about God. He's wanting to trap Jesus in his words. This phrase was common for asking for, what is the greatest commandment? To say, how do I inherit eternal life? It was a way of understanding that. And in fact, all the other Gospels will say he stood up and asked Jesus, what is the greatest commandment? And there's actually something interesting. And I want to, the quick little fact on, um, 
the New Testament is that the New Testament is almost entirely written in Greek, specifically Koine Greek, but it's entirely Greek and we translate it to English. There's a couple places where Jesus is quoted in Aramaic because Jesus spoke Aramaic. Uh, the Sermon on the Mount, his conversations with his disciples, those took place in Aramaic and his disciples wrote it down in Greek. So the Bible, by the time we get it in its first language, it's actually translated once. And so there's a, when he's on the cross, he cries out, uh, uh, what is it? Uh, Eloi, Eloi, lachma shathbani. That is uh, Aramaic. He's quoted in Aramaic. So when Jesus is quoted in Aramaic, it's mostly on the cross. We can assume when he speaks to Pilate and foreigners and Greeks, he probably was speaking Greek. You see, when Rome conquered, they taught everybody Greek. Greek was the language that everyone, if you were German, Spanish, Italian, uh, if you were Greek, if you were Jewish, if you were Nubian in Africa, everyone had to learn Greek if they wanted to trade and work and live with each other. And so Greek was the international language. And that's critical because there's something interesting about Luke. You see, all of the authors of, of the New Testament were Jewish, except for one, Luke. The author of the Gospel of Luke and the author of Acts was Greek, and Aramaic was not his mother language. So he does this interesting thing when he translates Jesus' teachings. There's times he'll say literally what Jesus said, or literally what was said, and the other disciples that know that it doesn't make sense will translate the idea. And for instance, there's a part where Jesus says, uh, you, must honor, you must honor me before your mother and father. That's what he says in the Greek version that's translated, but in Aramaic, he must have said something far more similar to what Luke says, because Luke says he said, you must hate your mother and father. That's a pretty extreme statement. It actually flies in the face of much scripture, but it's because in Aramaic, you would say things extreme. And everybody knew in the context, he doesn't literally mean hate his mother and father. He just says, you must really take this seriously. It's kind of like the joke about Italians. If you want uh, a little bit, you say you want nothing. If you want a lot, you say you want a little. And if you want nothing, you have to shoot the woman bringing you the pasta because she will keep coming. I wish I could take credit. That's uh, Ray Romano's joke, and it's hysterical. But they spoke in hyperbole, and so uh, in all the other Gospels, it says that he says, uh, to, the question was, what is the greatest commandment? And I think it's worth highlighting. I know it's a lot of language, but it, I think it's important because it gives us a greater depth of understanding of what the greatest commandment really means, what it's connected to, that it's, it's connected to eternal life. Well, the Jewish gospel said uh, one thing. We have this other one written by a Greek that says a little more of what was really being said at the moment. The big idea being, what is the big idea, Jesus? Tell me, what's the great commandment, the one that leads to life eternal? If we're going to do one thing, what is that simple thing? Give me Jewish hope in a nutshell is essentially the nature of the question. And it takes two languages, three if we include English today, to triangulate the great meaning of that question. How do I inherit eternal life? What is the great commandment? And it is a divisive topic. To prioritize the commandments was the hot, well, I mean, there were several, but it was one of the hot button issues of the day. It was controversial to say, if we're looking at the commandments, which of them, if you had to prioritize, you're going to break one a little bit and really follow one, what would be the one? What's the one where God can forgive that, but you better follow these or you're kaput. You will not inherit eternal life. It was a very controversial question. It would be like uh, being asked in a crowded room today, what's your thoughts on universal health care? Please tell us all right now. 
All right, now stand up in church, tell us. Tell me your thoughts on uh, claims that the 2020 election was stolen. Tell me your thoughts on abortion. You bring these up and immediately you're all sweating. Tell me your thoughts on the LGBTQ issue. The idea of being called out on that has got people terrified. You don't want to share because no matter what you say, you're going to offend somebody. That's the nature of this question. That's why it's a trap. How do you answer this question without offending everyone? And uh, we find out that when people try to trap Jesus, they're playing checkers and he's playing chess. And he always seems to win. But he's trying to get Jesus into hot water. And yet the question itself really does matter. That's the weird thing about this story is that we know right from the onset, it's a duplicitous question. It's meant to trip him up. Yet it leads to a conversation so beautiful, so profound, so important that two Jews and a Greek wrote it down. Or three. It's a critical question that's in our Gospels, and it's important. The Jewish thought on eternal life is really important because while it interlocks with salvation, inheriting eternal life and salvation do not mean the same thing. They are two different things, and they touch each other, and they, they work with one another, but salvation is, the, is being rescued, being redeemed, being pulled out of Hades, being uh, saved from that, but eternal life is the greatness of God, his promises received. It was to include prosperity. It was being given the joy of God, living in the promised land. These are the things that were considered. It actually might be more accurate to describe this as how do I inherit life eternal? Like the kingdom of heaven coming into my life right now, continuing on, growing, getting roots, becoming a tree of eternal life that when I die, I rise again. How do I get that into my life? What What is the direction from God to inherit such a thing? It encompasses ongoing life forevermore in resurrection. It could be saying, God, how do I inherit an earthly life that inherits eternity starting now? Christian hope should be a lot bigger than just escaping hell. It has to be a lot bigger. Honestly, that's, there's a lot of things that's really off with the fire and brimstone way of preaching the gospel. One of the worst is that it just sells it so short. That it's about just getting eternal life insurance. It is so much more than that. Life goes on. And the, the life, eternal life goes far beyond something that happens simply when we die. It begins now. It starts pouring in now, even before death. Christ said in John 10, the thief comes to kill, steal, and destroy, but I have come to give you life and life more abundantly. To give you life, yes, eternal life, but life more abundantly. To inherit eternal life that is just overflowing, that God's life, his, his, his creative power that was there in the book of Genesis would keep coming and flowing into a believer's life, continuing to give life, continuing to spurt out until it wells up to such a degree that death doesn't touch us and is broken and undone. That is the incredible hope of eternal life. It's why salvation and eternal life are not related, or they're related topics, but they're not the same. It's not the same word for two things, or same word for one thing. It's about inheriting a life that overflows, the good life, with no wasted effort. There's, such, there's just this heartbroken story of, of uh, one who gets saved out of his fire, who, who, who wasted his life, and Jesus says that he, when he gets saved, it's like those people are like those that get pulled out of a burning house. 
They show up to heaven smelling like smoke, and they've got nothing to show for the life they have. Yes, they inherited salvation, but life eternal was stopped for them. And it, 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 was, it was stopped up, and the, the incredible things of God had some sort of uh, dam that was built against them. A life that it's invested well reaps joy, unending joy, even in the face of hardship. Now, many translations will say this man was a lawyer, which means that even the New Testament lacks mercy for lawyers. <laughs> uh, what it means, what, what a lawyer would be, it would, or an, as, ours, as my translation here says today, an expert in the law, is they're a very specific type of scriptural scholar. They were Jews that studied specifically, and they mastered the first five books, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. They were considered specialists on the Jewish law, on the law of Moses. And so people would come to them with disputes of how should it be implemented in this specific way. The laws can't cover every single aspect. You read the law of Moses and you feel like he tried to. That is the most exhaustive thing to read you've ever read in your life. But there are just things that you had to have specialists that knew and could apply it. And that's what this man's job was. He would have known it incredibly well. It's important to know because it says something about Christ's response. In verse 26, uh, Jesus answers him, says, What is written in the law? How do you read it? It's interesting because at times Christ would respond to people quoting the books of the prophets. At other times he would quote psalms. Sometimes he would quote historic books. He would talk about things that happened to David. And with each person he was speaking to, he picked a type of scripture that spoke to them how they were thinking, what they needed to hear. To the lawyer he teaches in law, Christ reveals in so many ways, simply from just coming to earth as a man, but in many ways exhibits something that was exhibited by God always. God stoops. He goes down to where we are. He, he descends down to a place where he speaks our language and comes to us uh, in our reference and our understanding. He speaks the language of those people. He speaks to their reference, to their experience. To the Mosaic lawyer, he speaks in law. To Jews, he spoke in Aramaic. To Romans, he spoke in Greek. To people in this room, he speaks in English. People can sometimes, I find, doubt what God is saying because they feel, well, that has to be me. That sounds like me. I'm thinking about something I saw at work or it just fits some show I used to watch as a kid or... It's just, it's just my own emotional memories coming out. We can sometimes mistake God's voice for our voice because God is speaking your language. He's speaking from your references. He's speaking from your history. He's speaking things into your life from what you know and understand. Never discredit the voice of God within you because it doesn't sound like what it sounds like coming from somebody else. Or from them saying, well, God would never do that. For people that, that, that read the King James Version Bible, it's got the these, thou, thou arts. I would imagine that's probably how God speaks to them because it's what they are familiar with and what they've experienced. And God's totally fine speaking in Middle English because he did it for centuries. There's no way of, of understanding uh, how much he stoops because how can we even comprehend? God said, my ways and thoughts are so far above yours, you couldn't comprehend. How do we understand this eternal, ethereal, never-ending God in a natural context? He becomes one of us, becomes a man. He will stoop, he will come down, and he will speak to you in a way you understand. So have faith when he speaks to you. Sounds different for all of us. Because to our lawyer, he speaks in law. 
Verse 27, the lawyer answers, Love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, and with all your strength, and with all your mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. That's his reply. That's how I read the law. That's what I think the greatest commandment is. And here's the thing, even more perplexing. Our deceptive lawyer is right. That's the perfect answer. Jesus, knowing all things, knows who to ask and how to ask to get the right answer out of someone. Now, that isn't the first time that that's been mentioned as the great commandment. It's not original, but it's true. There's this saying, uh, great teachers often repeat one another. And so the rabbis had picked that for a long time. And there are two commandments, not even close to each other. They're both in the law. One's in Exodus. It's in a portion of scripture that Jews call the Shema. The first word of the prayer is Shema, uh, hear, O Israel. Shema means hear. Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one. You will love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your strength, and all your mind. The prayer goes on, but it's, the, it's that first critical line of you will love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your strength, all your soul, all your mind that makes up the first part. The second part comes from Leviticus, and it's at the end of summarizing civil law, how you should treat one another. Moses closes out the thought with, love your neighbor as you love yourself. And so they take these two teachings, and they bring these two together, and they say that all of God's direction fits into the two. Our Messiah said, who is the Word incarnate, everything that God's ever commanded you the way, to, the way to move forward, the greatest commandment, the way to eternal life comes to two simple commands. Love God, love people. You love God, you fulfill the law. Righteousness erupts from a love from God. People who give up sinful addiction stuff because they love God and they want to make him proud, that is a level of righteousness that is uncommon to humanity. It changes things. If you love God, you don't worship other idols. If you love God, you would want to speak with him often, be changed by his word. If you love others, you're going to fulfill so much of the rest of the law, all of the rest of it. You won't commit murder, theft, when you love someone as you love yourself. You won't speak harshly to someone. You won't gossip when you decide that you're going to love someone more. We think so many times of these sin and selfishness issues, but according to our Lord, it all breaks down to one issue. We have a love issue. We need to love people more. We need to love people that we don't want to love more. We have to love everyone, including enemies. And if we just genuinely love people, righteousness and those commands, they, they happen naturally. They, they have, a, they have a, an explosive nature that comes out of the soul when the soul loves someone. And there's something interesting about neighbor. In Greek, there are two words for neighbor. One meant your literal next-door neighbor. Jesus uses this word in his parable. When the woman finds the coin, she finds her neighbors, and they celebrate that the coin was found. But this term includes that, but is broader. It means your near ones. Your near ones, whoever they are. The people that are close to you. The people that you work with. The people that are on the road. Anyone who's close enough with that your conduct can impact them. You are to love that person as if they were yourself. Or as the golden rule also summarizes, to do unto others as you would have them do unto you. Loving others, I think, is actually the harder of these two commandments. If I had to pick, I'm going to throw myself right into that violent Jewish debate of the greatest command. Now I'm going to weigh in which one's harder. I think it's easier to love God than to love people. Have you found that to be true? I know I have. That is a challenging thing. It is so hard that we need God just to do it. 
the important thing is that God comes first. This commandment is so simple. It's so, it's so directive that the Christian life comes down to loving God, letting God fill us, letting us experience God's love to love because he first loved us, and to take that same grace and hope we experience and dispense it to others. That out of that fullness, loving ones, near ones, it just erupts from them. We don't work in the kingdom of God, and we don't do the work of the kingdom of God to earn God's favor. This isn't about, then that question, the way that it's asked, it's almost as if that's what the lawyer wanted to know. What's the greatest commandment? How do I inherit eternal life? How do I get saved? And we know from Christ, we know from his, uh, his apostles that we are saved by grace. We don't work the kingdom, we don't do the kingdom work to earn God's favor. We are given that favor, we're given that love, and from that changed heart, we do the work of the kingdom. And I think that's one of the things that's so hard about this passage. It's what's so tragic about this lawyer is that he, he asks the right question, gives the right answers, even uses words that show that he is so close. He says, how do I inherit eternal life? Because you know what? Eternal life is very much like an inheritance. We didn't build it. We didn't, we, we didn't go out and earn it. It's, it's bequeathed to us, given to us. And when you become part of the estate become part of the kingdom of God, suddenly you care for it, you want to invest it, you want to grow, you become concerned with the concerns of the one that brought you in and gave you your inheritance. He is so close, yet tragically not quite there. Grace fills us and we dispense that grace to others. Or as Paul wrote to the Ephesians, for it is by grace, he says, that you've been saved through faith. And this is not from yourselves, it is a gift from God, not by works, so that no one can boast, for we are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. Filled with grace to do works God prepared in advance, in advance for us to do. You are saved by grace. It is not, your salvation is not uh, on the line to do every day perfectly, to serve everyone and to love everyone absolutely perfectly. But you will be moved to do so when your spirit becomes alive with that love of God. The truth is you are saved by grace for such a time as this. So many, so many ways we, we often feel, I'm, I'm born out of time, I'm born out of space. This, this, is the, this is the hardest time to do this Christian walk I've ever seen. And I gotta say, the people that lived before you weren't called to this generation, you were. That's why you're born here. If you work with people that are, that are that same brand of, of hateful agnostic atheists that's so prevalent and common in this region of the country, you are called to such a time as this, to such a people as those, to such a crisis as this. You were called to it. God prepared things in his grace for you in advance. That as you become his, as you're redeemed, as the spirit fills you, those neighbors that are so difficult, you were meant to live next to them. Your coworker that drives you crazy, you were meant and called to work with them. In this region of the country that can be so hostile to faith, you were meant to live right here, right now. I think one of our areas that we get so caught up in and so lost in is that we wonder, what does that look like? I've heard, I remember hearing a, a, a pastor that I really admire, and I've listened to his stuff and read his books. One of his great big stories, when he was in high school, he stood up, in the middle of the cafeteria, and he preached to the whole cafeteria. 
And I remember feeling like, I, I can't do that. So as much as I admire him, I have to admit that he's on a higher level than me because I, I don't think I would do that. But that's not my anointing. This guy is so brash. I'm not like him at all. And I think that's okay. It's okay for you to be the way you are. God made you exactly the way you are, specifically the way you are, to be who you are to the people that are around you. God does incredible things through introverts, incredible, incredible things through introverts, through the quiet, through the gentle, through the patient, through the merciful, through the brash, through the direct, through the energetic. There's a great big world out there with an infinite amount of problems and an infinite amount of people belonging to the church to solve them. You are prepared for the neighbors that are around you and suited best for them. No one can take your place for the anointing that you have to the people around you to love them out of the personality God put into you, the individual that he made you to be. And this is the thrust of life eternal. Jesus replied to him, you have answered correctly, do this and you will live. Think about that with that question of life eternal. The life that begins now, that becomes meaningful now, that, that goes in a direction, that grows, moves, erupts into life eternal. Do this and you will live. This is the way of life eternal. This is the way of life abundant, loving God and loving people. That's how we move forward. There's this amazing insight I once heard about sailboats and rudders, that uh, if, you, if you take the rudder and you steer it and you move it, but the sail isn't getting any wind, the boat goes nowhere. It needs to be moving for the rudder to cut against the current and to do anything. But if it's full of wind and there's no rudder, it moves without a direction, without a purpose. Sure, it's moving, but it's not moving with a purpose. The boat needs to be moving. It needs to be filled with the wind of God. And the rudder of the work of the kingdom is what directs, brings purpose. It is one thing, one ship moving with one purpose. Two sets of commands that come together to the great commandment. Love God, love people. Be filled with God. Take that energy and fill other people. As with sails and rudders, loving God and loving people is what brings us into the eternal harbor of God. Those two things is the direction. That's what moves us forward. You don't have to be perfect uh, before you start one. Christ intends you to implement them co-currently. A term that they use in engineering all the time, two things at once. You don't get the God thing perfect before you start loving people. You do them both co-currently at the same time. Start loving people immediately. Start loving God immediately. You do not have to be uh, a theologian to preach the gospel through your actions. Go after God with all, every fiber of your being. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your strength. Love your near ones as if they were you, doing to them as you would have them do unto you. This is Christian hope in a nutshell. So let's get moving together. Lord, I pray today that if we have just been standing around so long, surrounded by complicated things, wondering what is the scripture business? What is Christianity? What is hope? What do I do? God, I pray that we would be refreshed by what you taught 2,000 years ago. 
as we see the master teaching everything else you've ever told us fits into one of those two. You are either telling us to love our God in eternity or to love the people around us. And God, I pray that we could take that direction, be refreshed, be renewed. God, I pray that weight would come off our back as we look to say, what will I do tomorrow and the next day and the day after that? And I pray that the lives in this room would be filled with spirit, would be filled with direction that would bring us into the harbor of what you would have for us. God, I pray that you would lead every individual to quit looking at someone else and thinking how they should be like them and realize you created them for such a purpose, created things in advance for them specifically, and you did not mess up when you shaped their personality. You did not call them to something that's ill-fitting. You didn't ask them to do something that they were not going to be able to complete with your spirit and strength with them. So God, I pray that every last one of us would be rooted in who we are in you, what you've called us to be, and that every day we could come to love you more, admire you more, that with every fiber of our being, we love God. And with the same dedication and nonstop care we put into our own health and happiness, we could put that into others. Lord, let us love others as we love ourselves. May we be directed by the simple to love our neighbors. We thank you, Lord. May we be a blessing to this city and to our neighbors around us and to our coworkers. Thank you, God. Amen.